I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are some under the chairs where you're sitting that you could use. Uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series today in the Gospel of Luke. And I'd like to read for us chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this new study in the Gospel of Luke that is so rich, 
Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonder of what you were doing, to be amazed at how you orchestrated this intersection of one couple's life with what you were doing in your great plan to bring your son into the world. And Father, I pray you would help us to see how this all applies and affects us even today. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 took off from the Kennedy Space Center. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the movie of Apollo 13, and you'll kind of understand what this story is about. But this was to be the third mission to land a man on the moon. But 56 hours into that flight, there was an explosion on board this rocket that knocked out one of their oxygen tanks, and it also crippled their electrical system. They would have to reroute power from the landing module to the command module. They had to reroute oxygen to make sure that there would be enough for the crew that was on board. The idea of landing on the moon was scrapped. The main concern now was to bring these three men safely home. And they would orbit the moon and then use that velocity to help them make their way back to Earth. They would use the landing module to help kind of put them in the right position. And then an hour before they entered the Earth's atmosphere, they had to jettison the landing module that had been their lifeline. You know, if you've seen the movie, how in those remaining hours, how cold it got inside that capsule and how they were worried, is everything going to hold together? And they had to make sure to be kind of frugal and when they used their electrical power. And then came that blackout period. When they were going through the Earth's atmosphere where there would be no communication with Houston, And during that time, Mission Control would be saying, Apollo 13, this is Houston. Do you read me? Apollo 13, this is Houston. Do you read me? And when the silence was broken, there was joy in that control center and relief when those astronauts finally made it safely home. The silence was broken. You know, for Apollo 13, that blackout lasted about four minutes where there was no communication. Can you imagine a silence that would last for 400 years? That's what we find in the Scripture. That the Old Testament had closed with the writing of the prophet Malachi. And 400 years passed with no additional word from God. And then at last, the silence was broken as God was preparing the way for the coming of his son into the world. Today, we're beginning this new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. This is going to take us some time to work through this book over the course of the next year. And as we begin this series, I want to share with you this morning some background information about Luke that I think will be helpful for us to know. Luke wrote his gospel for three reasons. One of those was to give us confidence in God's word. And we see that in what I read in verses 1 to 4. Luke was a friend and a traveling companion of Paul. 
He would write two books in the New Testament, the gospel that bears his name and also the book of Acts. One of the mysteries is why those two aren't put together back to back. Why is John there in the middle of it? And some have suggested it's because those first three gospels that are called the synoptic gospels are more similar in style and John is different. And others have suggested that one of the reasons is because of John's emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Luke talks about the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit, and the work that he would do, and we see that in the Gospel of Acts. But it was Jesus in that meeting, that high priestly prayer, and his meeting with the disciples in the upper room that really fleshed that out, what the Holy Spirit would do as he was given to those who would believe. Luke, um, we find out uh, some information about him in early tradition. Early tradition tells us that Luke was born in Antioch of Syria. He was a Greek, and he was a doctor. Uh, He became a physician before he became a follower of Christ. We don't know how he and Paul first met, but he would join Paul and Silas and Timothy in Troas on Paul's second missionary journey. That was in the early 50s, and he would continue to travel with Paul. Later in the book of Acts, we'll read that he was shipwrecked with Paul at Malta, and he was jailed with Paul in Rome. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul's last letter, he said, from a Roman prison that only Luke is with me. Luke also was an historian of the first rank. Skeptics and critics of the Bible, especially in earlier centuries, question some of the details and the specifics that, Paul, that Luke has in his gospel. But time and time again, archaeological discoveries have shown his accuracy and the carefulness with which he approached this gospel. His Greek is excellent. The opening preface here, these first four verses, are one long sentence in Greek, beautifully written. It is in the classic style of ancient historians who would give a preface to their work, and that preface was to explain why they were writing and who this work was for. And Luke tells us that he wrote to a man named Theophilus. We don't know who he was. His name means one who loves God or one who is a friend of God. And it seems that he was a high official, perhaps a Roman official. Uh, It's quite possible that he was also Luke's patron or we might say his publisher. In those days, to underwrite a project like this, there would be someone who had some means who would pay for this person to do his research and writing. He was their patron. I think that was a pretty good use of his money if that was what he was doing. To be able to allow Luke to do the study he did so that we might have this gospel. Theophilus is Greek. He appears to have become a follower of Christ. And Luke wrote this gospel so that he might know the certainty of what he had been taught. And we can be glad that he did. You see, Luke was also a second-generation Christian. He wasn't an apostle. He knew that the age of the apostles was passing, 
and what they had seen and heard needed to be recorded for future generations. So in these verses, he shares his methodology. He tells us that he used sources. And most believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first to be written and that Luke relied upon Mark. There are areas that are very similar in what they both wrote. But he also tells us that many had undertaken to draw up an account of the life of Christ. And he tells us that his primary sources were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And by that he means the apostles, those who had been with Jesus, those who had traveled with him, those who had seen him and seen the miracles he performed and heard his teaching and had written these things down. You know, it seems too from these early chapters of Luke's gospel that he also had either talked with Mary or he had heard the stories that Mary had shared. Luke investigated everything carefully. That word means accurately. And he did it from the beginning, which is why we have these accounts of the angels that came to Zechariah and also to Mary. 30% of Luke's gospel is not found in the other gospels. It is new material that he added for us. It is the most complete in that regard of the gospels. And he also wrote, for the benefit of those who were not familiar with Palestine or Jerusalem, he gives us details, he gives us place names, he gives us background information, so that we that are not as familiar with those areas can understand, or you can go to the map and you could look it up and see where these events took place. Luke gives us an orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry. It is mostly chronological but it also has thematic elements as he talks about the, gospel, the parables in the gospel and he brings those together in certain areas. Luke, like all of the biblical authors, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what was written was exactly what God wanted us to know. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 that it was the Holy Spirit that carried these men along, that no writer of Scripture did this out of his own imagination. They weren't making these things up. They wrote about what they had seen and heard. They wrote about what these eyewitnesses had observed, and they did it so that we might have confidence in the Word of God. You know, when it comes to what we read, that is still important today, isn't it? I was thinking how out of this last election, one of the stories that's come out is how much fake news was put out there on the web, and especially on Facebook, and things get passed along, and how do you know what's true? How do you know what you can believe when it's on the internet? And in that same way, when it comes to history and matters of truth, the integrity of the person who wrote is so important. And to be able to go back and verify like Luke did or like people can do with what Luke wrote and to see these archeological discoveries and to see the place names and events and where this took place and to listen to his style of writing, all of that gives us great confidence 
in God's word. Secondly, Luke wrote, so that we might have confidence in God's plan. And we see that in verses 5 to 17. Luke begins his story with a priest named Zechariah. Now, if you've ever seen a movie on the life of Christ, like the Nativity or maybe the Jesus film, and you see what happened here with Zechariah, you may have had the impression that Zechariah was sort of like a high priest. I mean, here he is going into the temple to represent the people of God when he offered prayers on their behalf. But what's interesting is that Zechariah was just an ordinary country priest. He was one of eight thousand priests at that time and what Luke tells us is that again for our benefit because we wouldn't know this that at that time the priests were organized into 24 divisions and each division would serve at the temple just two weeks out of the year plus the holidays the special seasons when you know all hands needed to be on deck for Passover or Pentecost or those major feasts And what they would do is they would serve one week at a time, and then they'd go home. So two weeks out of the year, Zechariah goes to Jerusalem. He works in the temple. And what happened, we read about it here, a little more information. Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. That was the eighth division. We read that his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And that is especially fitting that she was the wife of a priest. It wasn't required that a priest would marry someone who was a Levite's daughter. Uh, They just needed to be a virgin or an Israelite, but this was especially fitting. And we read in the scripture that they were a godly couple, blameless in their keeping of the law, devout. Doesn't mean that they were without sin. We are all sinners but it means that they lived their life with integrity before God, and they honored him. But there was a problem. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and in that culture, it was disgrace. And some people would wonder, not understanding infertility, if they had done something wrong. And infertility is still a burden for those who want to have children. And it is still hard. And there are times when people ask that question, God, why? Or what are you doing? Or why, when we want to have children, are we not able to do that? And Luke gives us the detail that just like Abraham and Sarah, they were well along in years. It wasn't impossible for them to have children, but they were past that time when it would normally happen And yet there is no evidence in the text that they had become bitter or angry at God. And then one day, Zechariah is chosen by Lot. Chosen by Lot to serve in the temple and offer the daily incense in the holy place. One of the details that you may not know is that an individual priest could offer incense in the temple once in his lifetime. There were so many priests, and they wanted to share this great privilege with all of the others that when you had been chosen, that was it. 
That was your day. And for Zechariah, this would be the greatest honor of his life. This would be the climactic moment of his career to be able to go into the temple and offer prayers for the nation. It was the time of the evening sacrifice, about three in the afternoon. The worshipers were gathered outside, and here Zechariah is with his holy censer going into the temple. And as he entered into that holy place, to his left would be the table of showbread that was set out. In front of him would be the altar of incense where the prayers would be offered. Behind that was this richly embroidered tapestry, this great curtain that rose to the ceiling that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And to his right was the candelabra that remained lit to give light for those who entered. And Zechariah comes in, and he offers his prayers And as Zechariah offers his prayers on behalf of the people, this fragrant incense rose like a sacred aroma to God. And just at that moment, Zechariah's heart must have skipped a beat because an angel of the Lord appeared standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And this angel had come with a message from God He comes to Zechariah, who is startled and gripped with fear, and the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. And he goes on to say that your son will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will be great. Not everyone at that time is going to think so, will they? Those who were the kings, the Roman officials, They would not regard that this strange man who went out in the wilderness calling people to repent would be great, but he was great in the sight of the Lord. And his mission would be to prepare the way, to be that voice who was calling in the wilderness, that one who would make the way level for Jesus the Messiah to come. And what we see in this moment is that the silence was broken. 400 years of silence is now broken by the appearance of this angel. God has come to bring salvation to his people. You know, this passage is so powerful and it is so rich with detail. Many believe that Luke's gospel was also written as an early defense of Christianity for a pagan world. Judaism had found acceptance by Rome that they could perform their religious duties and worship at the temple as they had been allowed. But what about this new sect, Christianity? What would happen to them? And we read in history of the persecution that would come to the Christians. 
And what Luke is doing here is he is telling the world that Christianity is not some new religion. Christianity comes out of Judaism. It is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. All of these things that spoke about the coming of the Messiah, the over 300 prophecies that were given about this one who would come are now about to be fulfilled in Jesus. Christianity begins in the temple, in the most holy place in Judaism, and it begins with a word from God. This is not some man-made story. This is not some new religion. This is God who is carrying out his salvation plan that was there from the very beginning, and the time has come for the arrival of his son. Luke ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. The angel tells us that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Does that ring a bell for you? He quotes from the last two verses of Malachi. Those last verses that talked about this one who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. The one who would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the children back to their fathers. This one who would turn the hearts of people to the obedience of God. John would be that answer to this prophecy. John the Baptist would be the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah that forerunner of the Lord, and the angel is making it clear who this child will be. You know, the names are even significant here. Zechariah's name means God remembers. God remembers his promise. God is keeping his word. Zechariah wasn't some priest chosen just at random and it just happened to be this was all part of God's plan. That on that very day, he would be the one who would be chosen to serve in the temple. John's name means the Lord is gracious. The Lord has shown his favor. There was no one in Zechariah's family that was named John. This was a name chosen by God. Even before this child was conceived, God knew who this child would be. And he had a plan for his life. I mean, these statements, this is powerful. What God was doing was that God was answering two prayers that day. He was answering the prayer of a childless couple in giving them a son, but he was answering the prayers of a nation in sending them a savior, the Messiah was about to come. You know, you place yourself in that position, man, I'd have been shaken like a leaf at this point. <laughs> Seeing the presence of this angel that had appeared and the words that he had spoken. But what I marvel at in this too is how God joins together these two things. This intersection of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life with the plan and purposes of God. And I think of how God has a plan for you and he has a plan for our time and the place in which we live and how our life intersects with his plan. And we don't know 
how all of that's going to work. We're not going to know it until we get to heaven. But I think about this church and how it began and how God called us here and he brought all of us together. And I think of the book of Acts where Luke wrote how it is God who determines the times and places in which we live and the boundaries, the areas. And he does that so that we might seek God and know him and he is not far from any of us. I think about those that we have supported in missions or the opportunities that we've had for pastoral training in different places of the world. I think of those that God has called out from our church who have gone on into full-time ministry and are at work. What we do here, what you have done, is all part of God's plan, and it intersects with this greater story of his plan to bring the gospel to all peoples. Your work is significant. Your prayers are significant. Your giving is significant. The labor that you do on behalf of the Lord makes a difference in our world. And Luke thirdly writes so that we might have confidence in God's promises, and we see that in verses 18 to 25. Zechariah asks the question, how can I be sure? I'm an old man. I mean, how can I know that this is going to happen? Wrong question to ask, wasn't it? How does the angel reply? I mean, Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That should have been enough for Zechariah to know. I mean, Zechariah was a priest. Zechariah should not have doubted. He knew the stories from the Old Testament scriptures when God had sent angels who had appeared to men. He knew the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and even about this forerunner who would come. And because of his unbelief, he would be silent until the day that John is born. And what we'll see as we continue in our study in Luke is that Zechariah's unbelief will stand in sharp contrast to Mary's faith. You know, and you think about that, you think about Zechariah, priest, he's older, this has been his life, he has served God, he has studied the scriptures, he knew all of that, and he's the one who questions. And Mary will come along, this teenage girl, who has chosen to be the mother of God's son, and she will say to the angel, be it done to me, just as you have said. It's amazing. Zechariah's response, though, shows us that even good people can doubt. And God was merciful in his response. Zechariah would be silent, but salvation would come in spite of human unbelief. His lack of faith at that moment would not prevent the work that God was going to do. And the unbelief of the world will not stop the coming of Jesus. He will return, and God will do exactly what he has said. And when I think about our own life, may God forgive us for times when we have had unbelief, and may he help us also to grow in our faith. Zechariah came out of the temple 
He could not speak. He could only make motions. He was trying to show what had happened, and the people recognized that he had had a vision. And when his week of service was completed, he would return home, but he would never forget what had happened there. Elizabeth became pregnant, and she rejoiced in the Lord in God's favor. He had taken away her disgrace. They knew that this child would be no ordinary child. And they loved him and they raised him up in the ways of the Lord. But even more than what was going on with this couple, we see this bigger picture that God was preparing the world for the coming of his son. He still is. He still is orchestrating events in our world today. To bring the gospel to the nations, this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. And what we do and other churches and missionary agencies are doing to bring that gospel to the ends of the earth is all part of God's great plan. But one day, when the time is ready, Jesus Christ will step back into history. So how do we apply a passage like this to our life? It's one of the challenges of narrative passages that were written for a specific couple. How do we apply that faithfully to our own life? Well, what we do is we look at things that tell us about the character of God and we look at the response of his people and the things that we can learn. And that's why, once again, I believe that Luke wrote these passages so that we can have confidence in God's word, that there is no other book like the scriptures written over 1,500 years by 40 different human authors, yet there is one author behind it all, God. There's a unity in its message. And we see from beginning to end this plan of salvation, and the focus is on Jesus. It is true. It's authoritative. It is a word from God. And the more that you and I study it, the greater our confidence will be. We can have confidence in God's plan that even when life is hard like it was for Zachariah and Elizabeth and they were wrestling with this whole infertility and they were struggling with God, why when we have been faithful, why is this happening to us? And you may be struggling with things in your life where you are questioning, Lord, why did this happen? Or why do we experience this loss or this illness? Or maybe it's a disability or maybe it's, you know, you got fired at work or laid off or something. And you wonder, God, what are you doing? God is still at work. His timing is perfect. I think of our oldest son when he worked up at Camp Shamino. One of the directors there, Larry, would always say that God is never late but he's rarely early. You know, God always comes through at just the right time, doesn't he? And he wants us to wait on him in faith. And thirdly, we can have confidence in God's promises. When God says he will send his son into the world, you can trust him. First coming, second coming. When Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, even if he dies, yet will he live, you can trust him. And when God tells us that in the future there's a new world that he is preparing, in which there'll be no more sin or sorrow or suffering or death, 
that he will one day make all things new and he will dwell among us and we will be his people and he will be our God. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we stand in amazement at your love, your mercy, and your plan of salvation. And thank you for the faith of a priest and his wife who trusted in you. Thank you for the way in which you worked in spite of unbelief. Thank you for your forgiveness and mercy that you have shown to us as well. And Father, as we go through this particular book, I pray that our wonder and our amazement at who you are and who your son is would just grow. And that this would indeed be a very special Christmas season as we await the coming of your son. Amen.